Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and I am here today with actual legend Tess Gerritsen, who is the author of the iconic and long-running Rizzolian Isles series. Tess's books have sold more than 40 million copies around the world, and the 13th Rizzolian Isles novel, Listen to Me, is out on July 5th. Welcome to the show, Tess. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. It's such a thrill to talk to you because <laughs> you are such an icon in the crime writing community. Could you tell us a little bit for people who are living under a rock and might not be familiar with your career, how you got started? Because you've had quite a long and winding road to this place, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I've written just about every genre there is. Yeah, no, I started off knowing I was a writer when I was seven years old. Took a detour to medical school because my father told me writing was no way to make a living. Then after I became a practicing medical doctor, I went back to writing. And over the course of the next 30 plus years, I've written romance novels and medical thrillers and science fiction and historicals. But my really big break was 2001 when the first Rizzoli book came out called The Surgeon. And ever since then, there have been uh, now 13 novels featuring Jane Rizzoli and medical examiner Maura Isles. I am somewhat embarrassed to say that Listen to Me is the first book of yours that I've actually read. Like I was obviously aware of you and I've seen panels that you were on for Sisters in Crime and been an admirer of you as an author, but this was the first book of yours I'd read. And uh, partially it was because I just get really intimidated by these long running series. I'm like, oh no, I I don't have time. There's so many books. But this just sucked me in immediately, even though it was my first one and I hadn't met the characters before. I was so enthralled with it and couldn't put it down. And now I got to go back and read all the other ones. (laughs) You're going to find a lot of changes over 13 books. I mean, I've never let my characters become static. I want them to evolve the way real people evolve. So you'll see one of the main characters, of course, is Jane's mother, Angela, who is one of the narrators in Listen to Me. And you'll see her at the beginning of the series where she's just a happy mom and wife, and she's been doing this all her life. And then midway through the series, everything falls apart for her. Uh And when you get to Listen to Me, you find that she's starting to rebuild her new life. Same thing with Jane and Maura. We've seen them turn into very different people as these 13 books have come around. And Angela, her POV is a new addition for this book, correct? Um, Angela has been in the series from the first book, but this is uh, the first time we've really heard from her point of view, yes. 
And that one was first person and the rest were third person. Why did you decide to do hers in first person? There's something very intimate about first person. I think that being able to get into their heads, you really hear their voice a lot more. And this is such a strong middle-aged woman's voice that it was important to hear what Angela thinks and to get her sense of humor and to see the world through her eyes. So that was why she's the first person character. Everybody else is third person in the story. She's got such a great voice. Like she's hilarious. (laughs) Always knowing everyone's business in her neighborhood. Yeah, it's fun also to see the neighbors that she lives with. I mean, who are they really? And you think about your own neighbors. How well do you really know them? And maybe they're hiding secrets. So that's Angela's sphere of interest. What is everybody hiding behind their windows, behind their doors? And she's like, I know you don't believe me. You're not taking me seriously. And then she turns out to be right, which I love. (laughs) Not right about everything, but she was definitely onto something. Yeah. I've always liked stories about the boy who cried wolf and he cried wolf too many times. And actually there was a wolf and that's the situation she gets into. (laughs) Yeah. So like you said, this is a really long running series and these characters grow and change over time. I'm starting to write my first series soon, the follow up to a book I've already written. And it's so intimidating to think about taking these characters on another journey that people will still be invested in because it's like you want them to stay the same, but not too much. So how have you approached that over the series? My approach is not to think too far ahead. I love that. (laughs) I think it's, you know, it's like real people. You don't know what's going to happen 10 years, 20 years down the line. All you can do is say, this is what happens to them next week. And that's how I've been with every book. It's okay. I I know where I left them in the last book. Let's see what happens next. And a lot of these evolutionary changes just happen in the course of the situation. We don't really know too much about Mora Isles until we see her in, in the middle of an investigation and then maybe some secrets pop out or things that she says give you a deeper understanding. Same with Jane. A lot of her evolution has been through. She starts off, unlike Angie Harmon, who's a gorgeous woman, the Jane of my novels is an ordinary looking woman who's battling to be accepted by her colleagues in the Boston Police Department. And what happens is that she does such a fantastic job investigating that they have slowly begun to respect her. So by the 13th book, that's not an issue for her anymore. That evolution of, you know, the rookie suddenly becoming respected. And that's wonderful because you get rid of that problem. And now we're on to the next problem, which is how do I do with my mother? That seems like that's going to be an ongoing problem. (laughs) I think think mom is always going to be a problem. But it's important not to feel intimidated by where are my characters going to be 20 books down the line? You don't know, just as real people don't know. That's really helpful because the book that I'm considering writing a sequel to, I wasn't thinking of writing a sequel when I wrote it and it was after it was finished that I was kind of like, I want to know what happens next. So that's true. So you're just enough ahead of yourself. That's the best way to write a sequel is not to have it planned out ahead of time. Just say, as you get to the end of the first book, what happens next? Because that's what will impel you to write the next and the next and the next book is you want to know where do these characters go? What happens? What happened to that romance? Or does that baby ever get born? You just want to see. It's like a soap opera in, in some ways, a, a soap opera detective novel. So since this show is unlikable female characters, we talk a lot about characters which have been deemed by readers to be unlikable <laughs> for whatever reason, which could be literally any reason. She has an opinion. She said a mean thing once. She cheated on her husband all the way from being a serial killer to just like was not a nice lady once. <laughs> It's amazing what people object to. First of all, the characters I love to read in other fiction, 
They are not necessarily likable, but they are fascinating. And that's what matters to me most. It's not that you have to like them, but you have to be really interested. It's like, sometimes it's like watching a train wreck. That's okay. It's fun. And then you're like, I would never do that, but I can enjoy it vicariously, them doing these shocking things. (laughs) She would never be my friend, but I'd like watching her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the conversation about unlikable female characters is as old as time at this point. Have you had that kind of criticism for your books and has it changed over time? Oh, constantly. It's a constant criticism because Jane Rizzoli, if you ever go back to the first book, The Surgeon, you will not like her. And I did not mean to have you like her because she was supposed to die in that first book. She was a secondary character and I had her death planned out. And this is what happens with unlikable but fascinating people is you start to get attached to them in some (laughs) weird way. And with Jane, I think my attachment towards her was just that she had so many things she was fighting against. You learn to respect her even though you don't like her. And by the time I finished The Surgeon, I had so much respect for Jane Rizzoli, I couldn't kill her. I mean, if you get to that scene, you'll know which scene she was supposed to die in, and you'll realize that, no, she should have died there, but she survives. And then you end up with an unlikable but interesting character. What next? You want to see what happens next. And I find that a lot of reason, and this is a believable reason why characters may be unlikable, particularly, you know, well, men and women, but women in particular, is that they're unhappy. When you're unhappy, people don't necessarily want to be around you. You have reasons to be bitter. You have reasons to to be angry at the world. And if you can understand those reasons, you can feel some sort of sympathy for these characters. Yeah, I mean, around here, we like the characters that people just can't stand and say they hate. We're like, (laughs) you're our hero. You know, so I might like her in the first book. I'll have to see. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other characters. We already talked about Angela a little bit. She's like very bold and brash, but she's so likable. Like you just want to have coffee with her or something stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I loved her. You just want to like sit and listen to her talk trash about everyone. And (laughs) sounds great. Then there's also Alice, who's the wife of Jane's partner. And Mm. she's the female character that the uh, the women in the book don't seem to like. So I thought we'd talk about her a little bit. (laughs) Well, Alice, I'm trying to remember where Alice, she might've been introduced in book number two. I can't remember, but yes, Detective Barry Frost is Jane's partner. And he is, I would call him the boy scout. Everybody likes Barry. He's nice to everybody. He's just this ultimate beta male. So who is he married to? He's married to an alpha female. And their marriage starts off in the books early on that he's totally in love with his wife. She's a law student. She's so brilliant. She makes him feel maybe a little inadequate. And somewhere about the middle of the series, she leaves him for another law student. So there's a reason why everybody else in these books don't really like Alice too much. She turned on our friend. And what happens with Alice is that she comes back to Barry because the affair falls apart. And the question that Jane and everybody else has for Barry is, are you going to take her back? Well, of course he is because he loves her and he's had some really bad dating experiences in the meantime. So I think that's part of the reason why they dislike her is that she treated him so badly. But it's also because she's really full of herself and you can see that in the story. She thinks a lot of her own intelligence. So I immediately loved her. (laughs) (laughs) as an alpha female married to a beta male, which my partner would tell you, he would identify that way for sure. I identified with her. 
right off the bat and I would love to read more about her but I can see why yeah I mean we've talked a lot on the show about how especially for women infidelity is this unforgivable sin like we'll forgive male characters for infidelity a lot more readily but if a woman does it it's horrible she's betraying her family and I don't yeah know. but I, I think the, the reason for everybody's dislike of Alice isn't that so much as the fact that she's impossible she's impossible <laughs> to to get along with for other reasons because she's always quick to tell you how much smarter she is than you are and she is smarter than everybody. Yeah, those scenes at the symphony, the classical music performance where she's yes. <laughs> explaining it and saying such condescending things. I loved it. But I also wanted to ask you about, you have some references to, and I'm probably going to not pronounce this name correctly, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but Artemisia Gentileschi, is that how you say it? Gentileschi, I think, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yes, she is an interesting artist, and I only came across her because I think there was an article in the New York Times about her shocking art. One of the few very well-known artists of, of that period where she had so much violence on the canvas. She was bloody. She would just show it all. And one of her famous paintings was of Judith beheading Holofernes. Yes, I love that painting. Yeah, isn't it a beautiful painting? And it's shocking because you can see these two women cutting off his head. So I wanted to use her because I, I feel that it must be that she was driven by rage against men because she was raped as a young woman and something about that comes out in her art. Yeah, there's a, I guess it's a YA novel, a novel in verse by Joy McCullough called Bloodwater Paint that's about her life story. I find her fascinating because yeah, she absolutely was driven by rage against men and made all this shocking art. But I loved, I wrote down this quote, as if women were formless lumps of clay needing to be pummeled and abused to be shaped into something greater, as if what Artemisia needed to become an artist was a good old fashioned sexual assault. (laughs) (laughs) I love that because we're always talking on the show about how it's bullshit that so many many female characters in crime fiction especially have rape Mm -hmm. as a backstory that is shaping them and driving them and that can be part of it but it's just become especially when men write it (laughs) honestly yeah it's something it's when a man writes it it's different from when a woman writes it it is we're just coming from a different perspective and it's also interesting now that we're talking about women as victims how much Female victims are the ones that really dominate mystery. And this is an answer I came to early on, which is that when we read scary literature, the person we identify most with is the victim. And since most of mystery readers are women, that's why we want to actually read about ourselves as somehow surviving these horrible things. And it may explain why there are so many female victims in fiction. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, it's really nice to read a a book like yours, then, though, where there are female victims, but then it's also women investigating and solving the crimes. You can kind of... (laughs) (laughs) And mothers. Yes, and mothers. We don't need men to be victims or the detectives. We can handle it. We got it. (laughs) Yeah. I would love to also talk about your writing process. We have a lot of writers who listen to the show, and I and my co-hosts are all writers, and you're obviously extremely prolific. I'm on my third book, and it's kicking my ass. So how have you written so many books? (laughs) Every book has kicked my ass. And I'm not so prolific. I write maybe a book every year to a book every two years. That's not that prolific. Pretty good. I've just been doing it a long time. And I think as you get older, the the books pile up. So it's just a matter of longevity and continuity. I mean, you just don't stop writing is the main thing. My process is I'm a plunger, not a pantser. I've tried to do outlines. I've never been able to stick to an outline. And I always end up writing a completely different book than I first imagined. Mm. My process is really just 
write the chapter and see what happens, and then write the next chapter following on those earlier um, events in the story. I start off with pretty good premise. I think the main thing is I always try to find a premise that grabs me some way. And with Angela, it was more the idea of mom being, mom seeing more than everybody else can see. It's a little bit like a rear window situation, except that now it's a suburban housewife who's seeing something. So that was part of of the premise is how middle-aged women, and this is one of the themes, middle-aged women become invisible. Once you hit 50, nobody listens to you anymore because they're all looking at the hot young chicks. So in a way, there's a a power about being 50 and older. You can get away with things because nobody's watching you. And, And you can see things and be unseen at the same time. So I've always felt that the best investigators, the best spies are going to be women in their 50s. Or serial killers. You could get away with a lot. (laughs) Oh, yes, we could. I mean, it would be so easy for us to get away with murder. It's just that luckily most of us don't really want to. (laughs) My theory is always that there are way, way more female serial killers than we know about. They're just better at it. And they... Yeah, they're smarter at it too, yes. Yeah, they get away with it. (laughs) They don't need the glory. So that's how the men are always getting caught is they're like calling the cops and bragging about what they did. Braggarts. That's what they are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So where do you find these ideas for premises? Do they just sort of come to you in a dream or do you pull things from the news or? Everywhere. I mean, sometimes they come from conversations. My very first medical thriller was because I'd had a conversation over dinner with a a cop who'd been traveling in Russia. And he mentioned that kids were disappearing from the streets of Moscow. And the Russian police thought the children were being kidnapped and sent to the Middle East as organ donors. So that became a premise for Harvest. I read a lot of newspapers, and one of the premises that I loved the best was for a book called Vanish. It was about a woman who was found dead in her bathtub, and they zipped her into a body bag, they sent her to the morgue, and she woke up. So, <laughs> yeah, it was not a great idea. I mean, that was the premise, was that woman wakes up in a body bag. Where, how did she get there? And that's, that's just sort of started the book. I didn't know where the book was going, but what it did do is it gave me a good launching off spot. That's a good one. Yeah. There's just has so many questions inherent in it. <laughs> right. And, and what's interesting about it is that premise could be taken in a, a dozen different directions depending on the writer. And I, I use this in a way as an example of how a premise can't be copied. What is different, what is individual about every book is what the writer does with that premise. And if I were writing horror fiction, of course, that body in the bag is a vampire or a zombie. And since I write thrillers, it's because um, somebody tried to kill her and they didn't quite do a very good job. You can take a premise and and write a thousand different stories with that starting point. That's the hallmark of, I mean, any genre really, but crime fiction, there's only so many plots and most of them have been done. So it's all everybody putting their own unique spin on it. So in all the time that you've been writing crime fiction, how has it changed just the industry? I mean, I know there are a lot more women writing crime fiction now than Mm -hmm. there were back in the day. I think it's become a lot more graphic. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing because we can get desensitized to outright gore and violence. And what I love most in a crime novel is really the deep, dark psychological aspects of it. So I think it has become more graphic. I also think it has become more demanding. Readers have so many books to choose from. They want every book to be somehow unique. And it's hard, as you said. It's very hard. I mean, how many ways can you write about murder? And how many ways can you describe a gruesome crime scene? It's tough out there as a writer to give the reader something new and intellectually stimulating. 
Yeah, and readers today, they're so primed to try and figure out the mystery themselves and look for twists. They're really smart, so it's yes. harder to outsmart them. But sometimes I'm like, just relax and enjoy the book. You don't have to guess everything that's going to happen before it happens. And you know, sometimes I think we forget that it's not the destination that matters in a good novel. It's the journey. And it's fun to watch characters, how they survive these crises. I wrote a book in collaboration with a male author named Gary Braver called Choose Me. And the whole idea was that a university professor has an affair with his student, which is, of course, a no-no. And um, what happens when the student ends up murdered or dead? What happens to his life? So there's really not much of a mystery in there because you start off in the present, you go back in the past. But the journey was what focused us on this project. What happens when you've made a terrible mistake? How does it ruin your life? How does your life spiral out of control? And it was that horrifying journey that that drove that story. That's what I'm really interested in in crime fiction, too, the kind of psychological implications. I don't want to just be fooled. I want to go on this yeah, it's, it's emotional journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's more than a puzzle. What are you working on now? I'm working on <laughs> um, something completely different. I happen to live in a small town in Maine. And we noticed, oh, maybe 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that we had a lot of retired CIA people in our little town. <laughs> and I began to think, okay, so they've come to this town in Maine. They're all hiding out after retirement. What does a retired spy do? What is it like? So uh, that's sort of the premise of my new book. It's about a group of retired spies in a small town. And one of them gets hauled back into action for something that she did 20 years earlier. And how do retired spies support each other? So again, it's a story about People who you think are, are no longer useful to society because they're in their 60s and their 70s, and yet these people have a lifetime of experience and skill and talent that um, is still there to be used. That sounds amazing. Did you interview some of your ex-CIA neighbors? Or is that, that <laughs> you all know, they don't talk to you. They won't talk to you. I just know who they are. I know who oh, some of them are. Oh, <laughs> okay. That is so interesting. Wow. Why so many of them in one spot? You got to wonder. It's really funny. The local realtor told us what she thought was that, you know, once you get one moving someplace and they like it and they call their friends or they tell their friends, more and more people show up and they tell their friends. So it's one of those things where they probably gravitated around one central person. Thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. Just to wrap up, can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? Yes. On Twitter, I'm at Tess Gerritsen. You can find me on Facebook and I have a website called TessGerritsen.com. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you and everyone by the time this airs, listen to me, will be out and don't be intimidated like I was. You can start the series anywhere, but once you read this, you're going to want to go back and read all of them like I'm about to do. Thank you so much, Tess. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.